The Lord be with you. Let us pray. Almighty God, whom truly to know is everlasting life, grant us so perfectly to know your Son, Jesus Christ, to be the way, the truth, and the life, that we may steadfastly follow his steps in the way that leads to eternal glory. Through Jesus Christ, your Son, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you in the unity of the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever. Amen. All right, so we're going to keep going through the catechism, of course, and the, uh, the next section is on uh, communion. We've been talking about the sacraments, and we're on page 58 of the catechism, uh, and so uh, we'll begin um, with just a little bit of a review. So, so what is a sacrament? This is one worth memorizing. An outward and visible sign of an inward and spiritual grace. Um, this language appears nowhere in Scripture, yet it is uh, replete through the tradition. Uh, this is something that Augustine says. It's something that a number of others say. Um, and, and the point here is simply to say that uh, what we see in the sacraments, which, which are given in Scripture, right, is this, um, this kind of dual nature, right? You have both the visible part, right, and you have or the visible sign, and then you have what? The inward and spiritual grace. Um, and this is, this is key because, uh, you know, I think as Anglicans, we hold that both parts are important, yeah? It's not just like you just kind of deal with the sign in order to get to the inward and spiritual grace. No, there's something in the sign as well. Um, and this all refers back. We've got to always be looking back to this. This, this is actually based in the reality of the incarnate Jesus, okay? So um, think about Jesus, right, for just a second, right? Who is he? What is he? He's both the invisible God and the visible human being, right, in one, in one person. Think about you. I know this runs totally contrary to the way people, most people think about human life, but what are you? Are you just a body? I mean, I don't think, I don't think there are very many people who actually want to say that. Even in this you know, materialist universe, people are like, ah, am I really just a body? Um, because there are a lot of things that can't be explained by just the body. Um, I'm reading this wonderful book by the editor of Harper's, and uh, you know Paul Guttaker for Christmas gives all the all his buddies a book to read, <laughs> and it's called uh, the Index of Self-Destructive Acts, and and basically it's about this guy who thinks that everything in the world can be quantified, and what he comes up against is this idea that um, self-destruction doesn't make sense. Like we do a lot of things that are self-destructive, and how do you make sense of that without this kind of idea of a, of a soul that's, that's not entirely rational according to material means. Okay? Um, and so we learn in Scripture that we are both, actually, both a body and a soul, um, if not spirit added on to that, which you know, I've always struggled to know the difference between spirit and soul, and I'm not even sure there is a difference, but, but there it is, right? Um, we as Christians hold that, uh, that the world is not just the material. Um, that God is the maker of all things, both what? Visible and invisible, seen and unseen. Um, and so uh, this, is, this is the basis of the church's sacramental teaching, is that it, it's, it comes straight out of the doctrine of God. It comes straight out of the doctrine of Jesus Christ. Um, and this is the reason that Jesus himself gives sacraments. 
with both the outward visible sign and the inward and spiritual grace. Okay, so let's, let's go into this section on Holy Communion. Question 131, why did Christ institute the sacrament of Holy Communion? He instituted it for the continual remembrance of the sacrifice of his atoning death and to convey the benefits of that sacrifice to us. Um, there is in Scripture, of course, when Jesus gives this to his uh, disciples on the night before he's crucified, what does he say? Do this what? In remembrance of me, okay? And, and that's not the best translation. I mean, the, 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 the translation seems to think like, hey, you know what, with your mind, just think about me a bit. That would be great. Um, and that doesn't actually capture what remembrance is even in the Jewish tradition. In the Jewish tradition, remembrance is what um, you do to honor the dead and, in fact, to keep them somewhat alive. Um, remembrance is an idea that, uh, it's, it's almost like this, it's almost like keeping the dead on ice for the resurrection. You do this by remembering them. Um, they are with you. They are, they, are, uh, they are in the community with you still. And this is really hard for us as modern people because where do we keep our dead? Not there, there, right? Like out of town, okay? Uh, you know, we don't like to have seminaries in, we don't like to have cemeteries. Either way, it doesn't matter. Uh, we don't like to have cemeteries where we are. We've done away with the idea of the churchyard, right? I mean, when you go to Europe and you have to literally walk through the churchyard to get to church, right? You're consistently and constantly reminded of the dead. But in this modern milieu, what do we do? We say, nope, we're going to have a big park, and it's going to have a lot of trees, and it's going to be really pretty, and it's going to be out there, so we don't have to go there. Um, I mean, I remember as a kid, I was always told, you have to hold your breath when we pass the cemetery. I was like, what? <laughs> I mean, I was raised by, you know, good, superstitious Roman Catholics. Uh, uh, I'm kidding. <laughs> but you see, it's this, it's this understanding, keep, keep the dead away. Um, but, but Judaism's not like that. In fact, if you've ever been to the, if you've ever been to the Holy Land, or, or they, the, 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 the dead are in the center of Jewish life. Um, the, the Mount of Olives is a graveyard. Um, it's, that's what it is. And it's there uh, because it's, the, it's really the furthest point east in Jerusalem before the wilderness. And so the dead are up front. The dead, the dead have a first row seat. Um, and Jesus is talking about, do this in remembrance of me. It's how you keep me with you. Okay, but it's bigger than that. It's always bigger than that with Jesus. And that's, and that's a lot of what's going on here. But it's a continual remembrance, not just of him, but a continual remembrance of the sacrifice of his atoning death. Um, and to convey the benefits of that sacrifice. So here's the inward and spiritual grace. Is that the benefits of the cross are given to the people of God. That's, that's, if you, when you think about the Eucharist, you should think about the cross. Um, and this is why it may, it may be something that's of interest to you, but um, up, up on the altar, up on a little shelf, we keep a crucifix there. Um, it's, a, it's an altar cross. It's basically meant to focus the celebrant upon what it is that we're entering into in this very thing. Um, which is very easy to lose sight of, right? Because we just kind of get like, oh, oh, bread and wine, and isn't this interesting? It's like, no, the cross is the center of Eucharistic theology. Okay, that's, that's if you get nothing else from this today, just, just understand that. The cross is the center of Eucharistic theology. Why? Because this is what Jesus says. 
Um, uh, and this is, what, this is what the New Testament teaches, and we're going to get into that uh, in much greater detail. All right, so you set? Let me just say a few things before we move on. Um, this, this type of uh, rememberful eating is what I would say. This type of rememberful drinking is something that's strange to us, but not to Jews. Okay? So, you know, we all get together at Thanksgiving in November, and we all eat, and we think, oh, I'm so thankful for X, Y, Z, isn't this nice? And, but Jews don't do that. Right? Um, they eat a Passover meal, and what do they think about? What do they consider? What do they remember? They remember salvation is what they remember. They remember their salvation through water. Okay, so that's important. They remember their salvation through water from slavery in Egypt. Here's the crazy part. Do they consider themselves to be free people or not? It's ambiguous, isn't it? It's not entirely clear that they're free, especially not clear that they're free in the first century. Think about the reality for a first century Jew is that, are you in charge? Not at all. You've got, you've got the Hasmoneans in charge of the, king, of, of the kingdom. You've got the Romans in charge of the empire. They're pretty much in cahoots. So what are you going to do? How are you free from slavery? How are you free from bondage? How are you free from exile? There, there starts to be all of this longing, right? There's a whole lot of longing, if you really want to know more. N.T. Wright really gets at the heart of this, I think. And if you're reading N.T. Wright, you really get to the heart of this. It's that to be a Jew in the first century is to think, I am both one who is saved and one who is in exile, even in certain amount in slavery. Um, does, that, does that resonate with you? Because that's the Christian life in a, in, a, in a nutshell, really. Let's just be honest about that. I am one who is saved, right? Yay. I am also one who is in bondage, right? Because every time I read Romans 7, you know what I'm talking about? Paul just going on and on and on and on and on. And is it self-indulgent? I mean, maybe. It sounds like that. But it's, it's bad, right? It's like, the very thing I want to do, I can't do. I find it to be a law that, you know, there's this war within my members. And, and you know, the, the good I want, I can't do. And the, and, the, and, the, and, the, and the evil I want, I do it, right? Or the evil I don't want, I do it. And, and wretched man that I am, who will save me from this body of death, right? He's both saved, right? And what? Not. Okay. This, this is the reality at the center of the cross. Is that... Everything, that has been, everything that's necessary for our salvation has already been done and accomplished. And yet, what do we wait for? We wait for the redemption of our bodies. Right? So, so this is the image that actually, you know, this is why we have this image of the resurrection in the, uh, in the, uh, in the, in the altarpiece. It's because it's not just the cross. What is it? It's, it's the cross and the resurrection. And it's in the resurrected Jesus that we see what our future will be. Right? So all of that actually goes together. And one of the things I want to really tie together is that in the Eucharist, we actually not, we don't just have this atoning death on the cross. What we also have is the resurrection. In fact, for centuries in the Eucharist, there's been this, um, in a sense, a reenactment of the resurrection in the Eucharist. 
Um, and in fact, it's really wild because Anglicans have sort of moved this around and played with it. And Father Jonathan can tell you more about this. But, but for centuries, there was a place in the there was a place of resurrection in the Eucharistic liturgy, um, and that's when the peace happened. Um, in the West, that was the way it was. Now, in, as Anglicans, we, we, we try to put more emphasis on confession and absolution as the means of peace within the church, and that's a good thing. Um, but it also takes that resurrection moment, kind of, it displaces it from the Eucharistic rite itself. Um, but I can say more about that as we go forward. All right, ready? We're going to talk about outward and visible sign now. What is the outward and visible sign in Holy Communion? The visible sign is bread and wine, which Christ commands us to receive. I'll just say a little bit about this. You know, uh, some, some wag has said that, uh, you know, it, it's harder to believe that the Eucharist is bread than to believe that it's the body of Christ. Uh, but, but actually, it's technically bread, and, and people will ask, well, you know, why don't you just use bread? And it's like, well, we are using bread. But, but part of the reason is that, listen, I mean, part of being a parish priest is being kind to the altar guild, okay? Part of being a parish priest is being, is being attentive to, like, the reality that, um, people are going to drop crumbs and have these, you know, it, it's just, it's not workable at the end of the day. And so, uh, so the host is, is much more, uh, how should I put this, economical, right? We could use pita bread, we could use you know, any manner of bread, um, but, but there's this crummy, there's this crummy issue we have to deal with, I'll put it that way. Um, wine is necessary, right? So, um, so uh, through the years, some people have said, you know, I'm an alcoholic, can I, can I, can you consecrate some grape juice for me? And I'd say no, <laughs> because, because wine is what's given to us by Christ. And most of the time, people are like, oh, that's okay. Uh, just a little sip's not going to kill me. And, and, it's, and it's normally okay, right? Um, but that is, that is, uh, those are the two uh, uh, elements um, of the Eucharist. Now, this is important because uh, one of the things that happened in the Reformation, that happened in advance of the Reformation, was that in most of the Western church, uh, the, the chalice had been taken from the people. Um, the, uh, and and the, the simplest way to put it is that it's just, it's messy, right? It's all messy, and part of the issue is that, um, that there's this desire to uh, make things as simple as possible. But I should remind you as well that uh, one of the things that happens in, in the Eucharistic practice of the church prior to the Reformation is that virtually no one receives communion. Um, non-communicating masses become the norm. Um, and so it's just the priest who receives. Um, it, it becomes a kind of private mass that's watched. And one of the things the, the reformers are on about is this. Give the chalice back to the people, and not just the chalice, but the whole thing. So actually, in the, in the, uh, in the Anglican uh, Book of Common Prayer, there's this thing called the exhortation, and the exhortation is basically the priest saying, hey, listen, everybody, I'd like to celebrate the Eucharist in the coming weeks. Thing is, I can't do it alone, because we don't do private masses. you got to sign up, okay? you got to tell me you would like to receive, so that you can prepare, and so that I can prepare, and so that we can have a congregation, okay? Um, and and this, is, uh, this is how it went for a long, long time. Um, until about the last hundred years, most most uh, Anglican parishes they would celebrate communion maybe once a month, once every three to four months, a kind of quarterly thing, Easter, um, and in the last century, in all churches, I should say this as well, this is in all churches, um, 
even, you know, like Baptists, Anglicans, Methodists, like Roman Catholics, right? There's been this renewed emphasis upon receiving communion weekly, right? Um, why? Well, a lot of it goes to the liturgical um, uh, uh, movement in the, in the 50s and 60s. A lot of it is preceded by uh, this movement in Anglicanism called the parish communion movement, um, where there's this idea of, wouldn't it be great, hey, just, I know, I know it's different, but think about it for a moment, wouldn't it be great if we didn't just have morning prayer, on Sunday mornings. Wouldn't it be great if everybody received communion together? Because there's this re-emphasis that happens um, primarily through the Oxford movement, which is a lot of the um, kind of theological and, and practical background of this parish, mainly because of, you know, Father Canary and I, and, and Father Crucey deeply identifies with this too. So we just want you to know that. And Matt, Father Matthew, you know, he does too. So <laughs> it's, it's, all about, it's all about this renewed emphasis on the sacraments, okay? And so, so there's this renewed emphasis upon receiving communion weekly as being important. Why? Precisely because of the, the teaching of the church fathers and the teaching of Anglicanism throughout the centuries that this is how the benefits of Jesus and his cross and passion are given to us. Okay. Full stop. Okay. Um, and that's why we have communion every Sunday at Christ Church. It's because um, no matter what happens in the liturgy, no matter what happens in the sermon, right? No matter, and this is the other part of it, no matter what kind of miserable, dang sinner I am, in ways you don't even know, right? Thanks be to God that it's not dependent upon me uh, that you receive grace. That I receive grace, for that matter. So all of this is tied together. Um, all right, you ready to talk about inward gifts? <laughs> the, the thing signified? What is the inward gift signified? The inward gift signified is the body and blood of Christ, which are truly taken and received in the Lord's Supper by faith. Okay, so we're going to talk about a couple things here. The inward gift signified is the body and blood of Christ. Okay, now these are really technical terms, and they're not meant to be, you know, but they are technical. Which are truly, okay, which means what? Truly, yes. It's it's not a kind of um, it's not a kind of parody. Not P A R I T Y, but P A R O D Y. Um, the radical reformers teach that whatever happens in the Lord's Supper is a kind of parody of what happens in heaven. It's not real. It's it's a mock. It's a mock up. Okay. Um, Anglicanism holds, because it's the teaching of Scripture, that the Eucharist is actually participation in the body and blood of Christ, truly. Okay. And let me, let me get into why this is. Um, if you have a Bible, you can open this together. 1 Corinthians chapter 10. If you, you know, I think if you really want to think biblically about uh, about uh, the Eucharist, best place to turn is 1 Corinthians. Um, and, and here's what I'll say. So if you, if you know anything about 1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians is written to a very deeply divided church. Deeply divided. There are parties and, uh, and not, not, you know, not drinking parties, but, but parties, you know, partisanship. Um, they are at each other's throats. There are lawsuits among them. A guy's sleeping with his father's wife. Um, you know, it's just one thing after another. It's, it's, it's crazy. And Paul, in the 10th chapter, draws their attention to the Eucharist. 
And he actually, he actually kind of um, greases the skids a little bit before. And he's talking about, um, he goes from talking about idols and meat sacrifice to idols to talking about the kind of participation that the people of God have in sacrifice. Um, how, uh, how the people of God, and he's speaking of the Jews, are in partnership with the priest who goes to the altar. Okay. And, and he says they partake in the same sacrifice. They're partakers in the same sacrifice. What's he doing? He's drawing an analogy between Jesus going to the cross and the people of God participating and partaking in that sacrifice. And then in chapter 10, let me pull this up. This is why paper Bibles are so much better. So far, fast and superior. Um, okay, let's go to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. He's warning them against idolatry, right? He says, uh, he goes on to say, um, he's, he's really getting typological here because he says, look, I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud. What's he talking about? The Exodus, right? Whoa, the Exodus, right? So he's already drawing this connection to the Exodus. They were all under the cloud. Now, are these Corinthians Jews or are they Gentile Christians? Both, a little bit of both, okay? Probably a lot of both. And he says, our fathers, whoa, He's drawing, he's saying, our fathers, all of us, um, were under the cloud and all passed through the sea and all were baptized into Moses. What the heck is going on? They were baptized into Moses? What? Like, yes, baptized into Moses. Okay. In the cloud and in the sea and all ate the same spiritual food and all, okay, see, divided church, right? And all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them. This is where it gets really wild. Does, 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 does Exodus say anything about a rock following the people around? No. Does it say anything about a movable drinking fountain that springs up from a rock? No. Okay. There's a rock <laughs> that Moses strikes and water comes up from it. It's not supposed to happen that way. He's not supposed to speak to it. He's just supposed to strike it. Anyway, long story. Uh, you read it in Exodus. Um, but they all drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. So he's not saying that it is literal. He's saying there was a spiritual rock following them around in the wilderness. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased, and they were overthrown in the wilderness. Okay. Now, I'm just going to give you a bit of a summary as we go forward. Now, these things took place as examples for us that we might, receive, that we might not desire evil as they did. Do not be idolaters, as some of them were, as it is written. The people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. We must not indulge in sexual immorality, as some of them did. And 23,000 fell on the same day. So, look, he's talking about the, the idolatry of the people in the wilderness. They're all following the same spiritual rock, which is Christ. They're all baptized into Moses, right? So, this is deeply sacramental language. We must not put Christ to the test, as some of them did, and were destroyed by serpents, nor grumble, as some of them did, and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now, these things happen as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed, lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful. Okay, he talks about he, he won't let you be tempted beyond what you're able, and he'll also provide a way out, a way of escape. Then he gets going. Verse 14, Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. I speak as to sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? 
the bread that we break? Is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. Consider the people of Israel. Are not those who eat the sacrifices participants in the altar? What do I imply then? That food offered to idols is anything? Or that an idol is anything? No. I imply that what pagan sacrifice they offer to demons and not to God, I do not want you to be participants with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Okay? All right. So all this is to say that, that the Christian has their identity what? In what? Participation in the body and blood of Christ. And this is the reason, the prime reason that Paul puts up to say, do not participate in idols. Listen, to participate, and we're going to talk a lot about idolatry later, but, but what's, what is an idol after all? It's a false god, right? It's a false god. It's, it is, uh, it is uh, an image of God that's not in the image of God. Well, why? Because God is spirit. <laughs> and can you make a graven image of spirit? No. And yet, Jesus comes in the flesh and gives us what? The gift of Himself. The gift of participation in Himself in bread and wine. And this is what Paul is talking about. It's like the, at the center of the Christian identity is this rock of Christ being poured out on His church through participation. And the word he uses here is really important because it's actually this, this really good Greek word koinonia. The, the cup of blessing that we bless isn't not a koinonia. Okay? Um, you may know this, that, that the common Greek language in the first century was this language called koine Greek, which means what? The Greek vernacular. It's, it's common, the common Greek. Okay? It's a Greek that everybody in the empire shares. They all have their kind of local dialects and they all have their own languages when they're among their people. But in the whole world, what do people speak and write? Koine Greek, right? Because it's a common language. Okay? Koinonia means held in common, joined to, being as one. Right? Um, and, it is, and it is this where the church gains her identity as one body. Um, so, you know, hear this. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, Paul's making explicit reference to baptism. Okay? Let's, let's, not, let's not forget the point. He's not talking about they were baptized into Moses and we are not baptized into anything. No. Saying, they were baptized into Moses, we're baptized into Christ. Um, they followed the supernatural rock, we follow Christ. <laughs> in, and, and we have participation in Him through a cup of blessing, bread which we break. Okay? Um, all of this is so important that you see this. All right. Okay. Now, they're truly taken and received. All right. Now, we use both words, right? Taken and received. I'm going to take communion. Okay? Take's a good word. I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna bash it. But there's often a problem with it in that I'm gonna go and rah, grab communion. Okay? So there's a bit of an off connotation. I like to say received more um, because it, 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 it conveys this understanding of I receive. Okay? Um, we, we need this renewed emphasis upon both, right? Um, because we often think about the gifts of grace as being something that is taken. Um, and that's true, right? It is taken, but it's also received. There are two things at play here. Um, and, and it's important to hold both of them. And, that, and that's actually why, you know, 
Christian's posture in receiving communion is actually really key. Okay. Um, it's, it's why even the church fathers say, how do you receive communion? Like you've made your hands into a throne to receive the king. I can't remember which church father. I think it's like Basil or something like that. I can't, I can't ever remember. It's, it's John Chrysostom. It's got to be. Like, uh, like a throne, right? Into the hand you receive. Um, it's why this kind of like, I'm going to pluck my hand in and grab hold. It just kind of doesn't really hold up. All right. How are they received and taken? With your hands? This is a great, this is like the wonderful Anglican kind of like mind melter. I love it. Okay, think about, think about the medieval church. How do you receive communion? It's primarily with your body, right? Because the emphasis is on the, the Eucharist being this transubstantiated body and blood of Christ. If only you could see beyond the veil, you would see blood and you would see human flesh. Okay, that's the idea, right? And, and part of the reason is you're having Eucharistic miracles breaking out all over the place, okay? And bleeding hosts and all this stuff, right? And their explanation is, yeah, well, beyond the veil of the sacrament, the sign, that's what's really there is like blood and blood and guts, essentially. Let's put it that way, okay? Um, the Anglican emphasis in reading the fathers is much more on participation in the body and blood of Christ, which are where? Remember what we said about the, the ascension? Where, where, where is the body and blood of Christ? It's at the right hand of the Father, right? Now, unlike Calvin who will say, the body of Christ is not here. The body of Christ is at the right hand of the Father. And in order to receive the body and blood of Christ, where do you have to go? Up, right? Wherever, wherever Christ is. Okay. And so the, the Calvinist and Reformed emphasis is upon the church being taken up into heaven, which I should say, not bad, right? That's actually pretty darn good. That's good. However... Anglicans are like, eh, well, but there's also this other element too, right? Of, of Christ coming to us. And, and we have to have both. And so there's this emphasis upon saying, look, however you receive, it's not like flesh and blood, it's not blood and guts, but you receive through the faculty of faith. Okay. Well, and I would, let me just go on a, on a bit about this. How is it um, that you and I perceive and receive the risen and ascended Christ? Bodily? Anybody here met the risen Jesus? Thought not. Okay. So, <laughs> so how do you receive it? By faith, right? You can't see, you can't touch, but you can receive by faith. All right. Now, I want to say another thing here too, which is really important, and it's part of the whole turn that sacramental theology has taken in the last hundred years plus. All right, in, in every place, okay, so this is Anglicanism, Roman Catholic Church, everything. There's a renewed emphasis upon the risen Christ, okay? Now, is the risen Christ a body or a spirit? This is a good question. Both, right? Like, I, th I hope some of you are saying, don't make me decide. It's like, yes, that's right. Don't make you decide because he's both, right? How is he raised? 
after the manner of her spirit. Right? Uh, Paul talks about this. It's sown a what? A physical, spiritual, or physical body, raised a what? Spiritual body. Does this mean it's no longer a body? No, because we believe in the bodily resurrection, right? It's that his body is now conforming to the manner of a spirit. Okay? This is really important. Okay? What does it mean to con- for your body to conform to the manner of a spirit? It means exactly what it means for Jesus in the resurrection, right? He's no longer bound up in space. He's no longer bound up even in time. Okay? One of the reasons you can see him disappear and reappear 100 miles apart is what? Like, listen, the laws of physics no longer apply to him. Okay? Because he's, he's, he's both in time and outside of time. He's just the, the whole body of Christ. So I really want you to see this. Like, I was trying to talk to you. Actually, Libby and I were having a wonderful conversation on Wednesday about this. Like, at the center of all Christian theology is the, bo- the risen body of Christ at the right hand of the Father, both in time and out of time both physical and spiritual, both corporeal and incorporeal, together, co-inhering, together, all is one. And this is the center of the church's theology. Okay? It's also the center of the church's Eucharistic theology, which is this, that it is not in the manner of a, of a spiritual body, okay, a risen body, to be bound up in time and space. So when we ask, where, where is Jesus? He's at the right hand of the Father, and... Matthew 28, lo, I'm with you always, even to the close of the age. Well, how? I'd say, what's he doing as he says this? He's ascending to the right hand of the Father. And listen, on every Ascension Day Eucharist, you should hear this kind of language. It's like, he's here and not here. And that's good news. Like, he's both with the Father and with us. And it's a paradox. Try to explain it, you'll fail every time, right? You have to hold the paradox up. Because at the center of the risen and ascended body of Christ is a giant, glaring paradox. Where is he? Is it the right hand of the Father? Where also is he? In his church. Like, all of this kind of comes together. Right? Keep in mind that uh, one of the things that Henri de Lubac, this great theologian, says, there are three bodies of Christ. Yeah. Okay, <laughs> three. Uh, how many bodies do you have? One. He's got three. He's got his physical body at the right hand of the Father, wherever that is, right? That's, a, that's also a great question. You know, where is the right hand of the Father? Pervasive, underlying all creation? Yeah, I, I think so. Right? Um, he's got his body, the church, right? Okay. I mean, I think we need to say that the church is the continuing, the continuing of, the re, of, the, of the incarnation in the world, something like that. Okay. And furthermore, his body in the Eucharist. Because Paul says, we participate in the body of Christ. Okay, meaning, look, this is even better, right? Meaning that in the Eucharist, the church becomes what she is even more so, right? That's pretty fun. Uh, meaning that, uh, that um, the body of Christ is built up through the Eucharist. I think we should say that, too. Okay, I'm going I'm to keep going, though, so we can get through as many of these questions as possible before uh, about 10 till, all right? What benefits do you receive through partaking of this sacrament? As my body is nourished by the bread and wine, my soul is strengthened by the body and blood of Christ. I receive God's forgiveness, and I am renewed in the love and unity of the body of Christ, the church. Okay, we have to really kind of parse all this out. 
um, in, in, in kind of classic transubstantiation kind of thinking. What is the, what is the Eucharist? It's the body and blood of Christ, right? And it's this whole like blood and guts kind of mentality, right? That behind the accidents, you have the substance, right? And we're speaking in Aristotelian terms. This is the metaphysic. It's, it's behind all that is the real deal substance of blood and guts. Okay, I'm just going to kind of say that. That's probably a little bit terse, but whatever. Um, that's what's there. In Reformed understandings, the church is taken up to the right hand of the Father, where we receive Jesus from the right hand of the Father, mystically. In Anglican understandings, it's, 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 it's something on a continuum, but there's everything from the Lutheran understanding, which is that it's both the body and blood of Christ and bread and wine. Furthermore, the Reformed understanding holds, right? We are mystically transported to the right hand of the Father, however that happens, right? That's why we... Uh, that's why we say holy, holy, holy. Okay? It's why in the classic Anglican rites, this is one of my favorite things, classic Anglican rites, we don't sing the Gloria at the beginning of the Eucharist. We sing it after we, after we receive communion with, with consecrated elements still on the altar. Glory to God in the highest and peace to the people on earth. Lord God, heavenly King, almighty God and Father, we worship you, we give you thanks, we praise you for your glory. Right? So all of that is to say, and I'm, I'm going on and on, but that you really want to get Anglican Eucharistic theology, it, just get that it's comprehensive. <laughs> like, it's, it's trying to cover all the bases because no one theological thought actually fits, okay? So, there's a rejection of transubstantiation as too simple, okay, or too metaphysical, right, to describe a mystery. There's a rejection on the face of blankly reformed Eucharistic theology because it's like, well, hold up, like, it's not as though you can just sort of like fly up into space wherever the ascended body of Christ is and just go there mystically. Like, that's not what we're talking about. And so there's, a, there's an emphasis on that. Why? Well, why does this all happen? Well, it happens because Anglicanism sacramentally follows the fathers. And the fathers basically just say, it's the body and blood of Christ. Like, uh, that's what it is. Um, but I would also say something in addition to that, which is this, that there's not a shying away from a corporeal presence in the Eucharist. Like, that's pretty clear, right? So, like, even when we talk about, like, what does it mean for the risen body of Christ to be spiritual? Does that mean incorporeal? Not at all, right? Um, to say that the risen body of Christ would be spiritual, meaning non-corporeal, would be a denial of the bodily resurrection, which is not what Scripture teaches. Okay? So, I want, to, want you to see the whole plane here. Um, and what I would say is that Anglicans tend to fall on a spectrum of Eucharistic thought, right? There's something between, like, kind of Lutheran ideas of what we call consubstantiation to kind of, uh, there's, there's a bit of a kind of receptionist kind of theology, which is where if you receive by faith, then if you don't have faith, then you're probably not receiving the body of Christ, and you're probably doing worse. You're probably eating and drinking damnation on yourself, okay? So there's that, right? There's also this deeply sacramentalist tradition which comes out of the Osher movement, which is much more a return to saying, like, look, get, get back to the fathers, like, reappropriate re this patristic teaching. Um, so it's all there, right? Um, and I would say that's pretty much what you should expect, 
when we're talking about a mystery. Okay. Um, now to give to give mine away, I you know I'm I'm like firmly in the real presence camp. Okay, not transubstantiation, but firmly in the real presence. What is given in the Eucharist? Really and truly, the body and blood of Christ. Period. <laughs> Let's put a bow on it. That's it. Like that's what we teach. Um, all right. So let me let me just kind of get into this a little bit. Body is nourished by bread and wine. So there's not a denial that the that the body and blood of that the bread and wine actually nourish you. Okay. So that's cool, right? That means like it's not like it's not like the accidents are worth nothing, right? Um, and sort of like, well, what is it? Why? But my soul is strengthened by the body and blood of Christ. I receive God's forgiveness, so this is really important. Um, you receive forgiveness in the Eucharist. Um, and you might say, well, well, what kind of forgiveness? It's like, you receive forgiveness in the Eucharist, right? What, see, think about forgiveness for a moment. What is it? It's a, it's a canceling of a debt, right? I, I love, you know, Steve Waters talks about what, for, how he translates forgiveness and how they translate forgiveness in Tibetan Bibles. Because, you know, Steve Waters is a part of the translation of Bible, the Bible in Tibet. And in, and in, um, and in, um, uh, why can't I remember the name of the country? Oh, well. But he says, it's like you catch a fish and you let the fish go. You let it off the hook. You decide, I'm not going to eat you. Right? Think about this for a moment. I love that because it's deeply Eucharistic. Deeply Eucharistic. Just that idea is Eucharistic. I mean, I can only imagine what the flourishing of Tibetan Eucharistic theology will be because of this thought. Right? Think about it. What happens on the cross? Is it not God saying, I'm not going to eat you? And instead, I'm going to die and you're going to eat me? Like, yeah, that's a pretty good statement. That's a pretty good full statement of forgiveness, right? Like, think about it for a moment. When you forgive someone, what happens? Do you force them to bear the weight of their terribleness and their sin? Look, we still use this language like, when I forgive a debt, what do I say about it? I'm going to eat it. Right? Like, I'm going to eat the debt. Um, this is all this is all coming together in language, right? So I really want you to see this, that what happens in the Eucharist is we, we eat the crucified Christ. Okay? Um, and this is, this is a basis of forgiveness. Now, does this mean that you shouldn't confess your sins because you just come to communion every week and you're, and you're forgiven? No, because there's that in Scripture too. And you have to, you have to think about that. Okay? Um, I am renewed in the love and unity of the body of Christ, the church. That's the, that's the final thing. Is that how, what makes the church the church? I keep asking this over and over again. Okay, look. Hi, Stephen Maryland. <laughs> Thanks be to God, right, that, that the church does not depend upon Steve and I agreeing. Because that would be messy. I love you, Steve, but that would be messy, right? And I'd always have to wonder, do Steve and I really agree? Are we really on the same page? And, and should we be? Yes, we should all strive to be in unity, right? But that's not the point. The point is that the church is forged in the fires of the Lord's death and resurrection, that's what you really have to get. That's where the unity of the church comes from. That's what Paul's calling them to see, is that you're baptized into Christ. You're baptized into his death and resurrection, and you receive participation in his body and blood in the Eucharist. This is what makes the church the church. 
which is why Anglicans will always say, what is the church? The church is that place where the Word of God is truly preached and the sacraments are faithfully administered over and over and over again. Okay, got it? So what makes the church, the Eucharist is forged, in the, or the church is forged in this Eucharistic way, right? Um, I mean, in a real sense, uh, in the Eucharist, you, you become what you are, and you eat what you become. This is what Augustine says about the Eucharist. It's a wonderful Easter homily, and he says, he says about the Eucharist, right? This is to people who have never received the Eucharist before. He says, this is catechumens who've been baptized, and now he's preaching to them, and he says, look, you're about, you've never even seen this before, right? But look, you're, you're going you're gonna to eat bread and you're going to drink wine. Just to tell you, eat what you become or what you became. Um, see what you are. That's really at the heart of Augustine's Eucharistic theology is you're, you're perceiving through the sense of faith what you are and what you eat and what you will become. Okay? Which, by the way, this is really important. Every Eucharistic ask every Eucharistic act is eschatological in orientation, okay? Well, think about it. What does Jesus say? In this way, you will remember, okay, and, and he looks forward. Remember this? He says, I long to eat of this with you in the kingdom. So, so there's an expectation. There's an eschatological expectation here. Um, what does this look like? Well, it looks, it looks like this. It looks like the church facing, if not physically, liturgically, east to the rising of the sun, to Jesus. And, and look, this is, this is why this image in the altar is very intentional. When I sat down with Sean Oswald and said, like, here's what we should try to figure out, right? It's like, how can we design an image that portrays not just the risen Christ and what our future is in the risen Christ, but also this Eucharistic theology? And look what's happening. Do you see his hand? His hand is like this, because he's pointing to himself in the Eucharist. One of the things you can't see is that when we have, we have a little gold plate called a paten, and the paten sits on the altar, and when you pull the priesthood up off the, up off the paten, reflected in mirror image on the little plate is the image in the altarpiece. That's pretty cool. That's really cool, okay? Because it's, it's right there. Okay. Um, so all of that is to say that, that that um, the risen Christ is presented to us in the Eucharist for, for our communion. Okay, let me, let, me, uh, let me wrap these both up quickly. What is required of you when you come to Holy Communion? I am to examine myself. Do I truly repent of my sins and intend to lead a new life in Christ? Do I have a living faith in God's mercy through Christ and remember his atoning death with a thankful heart? And have I shown love and forgiveness to all people? So you should actually think about this every Sunday. There should be this kind of like, and every time you come to the Eucharist, like, what is my attitude, right? What is my orientation toward God? Am I sinning in a way that is openly scandalous, that I don't repent of, right? Like, I'm going to keep doing this, and I don't want new life, okay? I hate my brother. I hate my sister. I hate my former friend, okay? Um, do I have a living faith in God's mercy through Christ? Okay. Now listen, people will always ask me, like, hey, I, I am, like, I'm a miserable sinner. Should I be receiving communion? And the answer is yes. Yes, you should be, right? Don't let sin stand in the way of you receiving communion. If you need to unburden your conscience, that's what confession's for. Okay, I'm just going to throw all that out. However, having said that, 
miserable, it used to be in the, in the prayer book language we would say, that we're miserable offenders, miserable sinners. I remember my, uh, one of my professors, a bishop in seminary, said that he had this old lady that came up to him after church one Sunday and said, Father, I want you to know that I know I'm a sinner. I've just never been a miserable one. Like, yeah, well, that's, that's right. Well, miserable doesn't mean that I hate being, I hate being a sinner. Miserable means I, that, um, that I am able to receive God's mercy. That's what it really means. Who's able to receive God's mercy? Everyone. Everyone. Okay. So uh, this, is, this is very key. Um, and I would say that that's why we have a confession prior to communion every single Sunday and every time we celebrate the Eucharist. It's why the words of Scripture are pronounced. Remember, um, how do I begin this? It's so ingrained in me, I can't even think about it when I'm not in the liturgy. But um, hear the word of God to all who truly turn to Him. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Right? We say these four sentences of Scripture every single time. Um, I'm really glad of that, because that hasn't always been the case. All right. Um, but I would also say self-examination is really important. It's an important practice for you to t- undertake every day, every week. Right? Um, I would also say this too. This is important. What is repentance? Is it just leaving sin behind? No, because that's... Okay, so repentance in Scripture is, is called metanoia. It looks like this. That's, it's an about face, okay? If you're in marching band, you know what an about face is, okay? Um, it's to turn around. Um, and it's to turn from your way to God's way. It's to turn from walking west to walking east, okay? This is all in the baptismal liturgies. We turn, it, look, in baptism, you face west, you renounce the world, the flesh, and the devil, and you turn east towards, towards Christ. Okay. Um, so, so it's a question of where are you facing? And you've got to ask that question, like right now, where are you facing? Where are you, what are you after? And you say, I'm leaving that behind. And, and listen, I, I am not unaware that repentance is taking place in the Eucharistic liturgy as it's happening. Okay? What, you, what you go to receive is you go to receive that new life. And if, and if that's not what you want, then don't receive. Get a blessing, okay? And, and consider it and ask God, you know, why is, it that I don't, why is it that I don't really want that new life? Why is it that I just feel like apathetic about it or whatever it might be? That's really important, really key. All right. Because what are you receiving? You're receiving grace for this metanoia, for this turning. All right. One last question. What is expected of you after partaking in Holy Communion? I should continue to grow in holiness, avoiding sin, showing love and forgiveness to all, and serving others in gratitude. All right. So the growth in holiness is so important, and it's so essential that we, we think about um, how the sacraments strengthen this life of sanctification. Um, think about this for a moment. How, how is it that we, you and I become sanctified as Christians? Is it by pulling ourselves up by our bootstraps and saying, I'm going to get me sanctified? <laughs> like, not even close. Like, not even remotely close. What's, what's actually going on? The work of the Holy Spirit. That's what's key. That's what's so key. And that's why we actually invoke the Holy Spirit upon the gifts of the Eucharist. You'll note this. Like, there's, 
we call down the Holy Spirit upon the gifts of the Eucharist um, to sanctify them. Um, it's, it's why, oh goodness, this just goes far and wide, right? Every sacrament involves in a kind of invocation to the Holy Spirit um, for sanctification. Um, that God wants to wash you of sin. God wants to, God wants to do this. And it's not primarily our work. Now, having said that, do we have to cooperate with it? Yes. Okay, we do cooperate with sanctification. You can, you can freely walk away from sanctification. You can, you can reject it. Okay? I believe that. I know that. You know that. Let's be honest about it. Okay? But, but how does that sanctification work? It's, it's God's work. All right. Um, furthermore, let's just say this. Avoiding sin. Showing love and forgiveness to all. And serving others in gratitude. There's something about the habitual receiving of communion that I think is really key. It's that I should sit there when I'm considering, like, that course of action looks pretty appealing. <laughs> oh, crap. I got to go to church on Sunday. <laughs> I got to receive communion on Sunday. I got to, like, receive Jesus into my body <laughs> on Sunday. You're like, eh, probably not worth it. <laughs> like, these habits actually do something to us, they form us. They say, like, hey, you can't be doing that. Like, that's why it's so important that you just say in your mind, like over and over again, like, hey, listen, Sunday obligation is an obligation. Right? I'm not just going to not do it. Like, it's essential that I continue on in this, in this pattern of life. So, so if you just kind of wipe that off as an option, I think for a lot of people, like, they wake up on Sunday morning and think, do you want to go to church today? Should we go to church today? And listen, if it's just not even in your radar screen as an option, then it won't be an option. Um, but but that, that forms us in a certain way. All right. Showing love and forgiveness to all. Okay. Look, if you have to see your neighbor in the church on Sunday and you're going to sin against them, you probably will have one more reason to avoid that. Okay. And if you see your neighbor that you have wronged in the week before or the two weeks before or the year before, listen, that's what the peace is there for. Like, I tell this to people, like, if you are at enmity with your neighbor and your neighbor happens to be here, if your neighbor doesn't happen to be here, go make peace. Go make peace. Where's the peace come from? The risen Christ, right? Who says, peace be with you. Okay. Anyway, leave that there. Um, but, but that is what that's for. And so, um, you know, come, come to the Eucharist in faith. Come to the Eucharist in repentance. All right, we'll pick up next week with the rest of the sacraments.